Uh, thank you for the clock, guys. Uh, here we go, I think, right? I get to go? All right. Okay, it won't work. Okay, good, thanks. All right, here we go. All right, so last week, women were at the retreat, and I heard the retreat went awesome. So those of you who went to it thought it went awesome, whoop, whoop. Okay, <laughs> I'm a little louder than that one. One more time, whoop, whoop. <laughs> there you go, okay. So, uh, but what we did last week is, is, of course, we're in our series, Empowered. And Empowered, for those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, welcome for your first time here. But the point is, is that Empowered is just this idea that we're watching how Jesus discipled his disciples because we're assuming and understanding that that's how he's going to disciple us. Same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what he's doing. And it's this idea of learning how to become truly his instrument, where the Holy Spirit can come upon and flow through to do whatever he wants. So we're on this thing right now about, and this is what we really hit last week was, is be doers, not just hearers. And so we're going after this strongly, and I gave a charge to the men last week about this, and what I said was, is, you know, all of you got this at this point in time, is, you know, two emails that said, how's it going, what's happening, and so on, okay, and we're just trying to create a dialogue and get this going. Uh, by the way, can I ask a quick question, and be totally honest here, how many of you are actually getting our emails, whether you're reading them or not, how many of you are actually getting them? Oh, that's much higher than I would have thought. I'm not going to ask the question, how many of you are reading them? <laughs> Why? I'm not, I'm not supposed to do that, right? Okay. So, but we sent out these emails, and I've gotten a whole bunch of really good replies back. And my own experience was, is literally before I got out the door that day, I had two moments where the Lord showed up and did something that was very important. So totally awesome, okay? I did get a testimony that I'm going to read to you right now, and it's a little bit longer, but trust me, this is so worth it. Actually, it doesn't actually come from last week's sermon or last week. It comes from just a couple of weeks before, but definitely where we were headed, and this person totally understood that this is where we're headed, okay? So I just want to read this to you, but, but remember what I did. Sorry, I just got one scripture here. The Lord now chose 72 disciples and sent them ahead, and that's what we're doing. We're graduating from that college level where we watch and learn. And we're going into that master's level where we start doing. And that's where we're learning so much more. So here's a story of somebody who went and did something which is totally outside of his normal character. He says it in the email, but he's also said it to me privately. He said, this is just, I don't do this. But because of what we're doing, he did this. And now listen to this story. Okay, the backstory on this, by the way, is that their daughter had gone to Leavenworth, and the, the husband and wife decided, you know what, that'll be fun, let's go up there, let's spend an evening ourselves, and then we'll pick up our daughter at some point and have a little bit of time with her and have the drive back, and it'll be a fun weekend, right? So I'm picking it up from that point, okay? On Saturday, the 21st, I woke up with a strong sense that the Lord wanted me to go to church on Sunday and not do the overnight stay as we were planning in Leavenworth. I told my wife what I was feeling, and we rescheduled our plans, kudos to her. On the 22nd, that was Herb Marks, remember? I attended church and really felt the Lord working on my heart during the entire service. As I shared with you, later that day in the early evening, I was running errands when my wife called me to inform me that the daughter of a good friend of my wife was in a very serious car accident this morning. Now, I almost want to say cover your eyes, but don't. This is the car wreck. Look where the tree is, okay? 
So when he says very serious car wreck, this couldn't be more serious, right? I mean, that tree went right into where that person was sitting, okay? Now listen to the rest of the story. As my wife was sharing what had happened with me, I had an overpowering sense that the Lord wanted me to go to the hospital. So I stopped my errands and drove straight to Harborview. By the way, uh, uh, Harborview is our critical care place, and that's the, that's the call no pastor wants to ever get, okay? You know, when, when somebody goes to Harborview, that's bad, okay? Not that Harborview's bad. Harborview's awesome. But it's, you know, it means it's very serious. So I stopped my errands and drove straight to Harborview, met with the mother, and eventually we laid hands on him and prayed that the Lord would not let her die. Now listen, this was not something that I typically do. <laughs> the Lord put on my heart that I needed to go, and there was a strong sense that time was of the essence. And while there was a heightened sense of urgency to get to the hospital to pray, by the time I left, I was at complete peace about the situation. Really had a sense that the girl was going to be fine. The Lord also put in my heart to go and meet with the father who was in a bad emotional and spiritual state. He's a doctor and he expressed little hope that his daughter would survive and shared that he was struggling with his faith. Again, out of character for me, I asked him to go into the living room and we both got on our knees and spent time in prayer, praying to the Lord for his daughter, but also for the restoration of his faith. Well, as bleak as the situation was on the 22nd, seven days later, the daughter recovered to the point that's almost hard to explain. The breathing tubes are removed. There's no sign of brain injury. She's out of ICU in the regular room. She's taking visitors, talking, and she appears to be well on her way to a full and complete recovery. <laughs> Obviously, all the praise, power, and glory goes to Jesus Christ. The Lord did not need me in anywhere capacity for him to be with the daughter on Sunday. However, I think the Lord did want me to go and pray over her with her mother and then with her father. And I also think that the Lord knew that I needed to be trained up and equipped for the assignment that I was going to be sent on later that day. I think that's why he put it on my heart not to go with my wife to Leavenworth, but rather to go to church that Sunday morning. I honestly don't know if I would have responded to a call from this person, sorry, I meant to minimize that totally, in the same way that I had not been at the church that morning. It was strange, but on the drive to Harborview, I had this strange sense that I'd be praying in the spirit and power of the Lord over this injured girl. I hope this makes some sense and in no way comes across that I'm anything special because I am not. I'm merely grateful the Lord has allowed me a front row seat and he has demonstrated his love, compassion, mercy, and healing powers over this young lady. Do you want that? Let's be honest. Some people are saying, I don't know. But let's be honest. Underneath that is a thing inside of you that you're built to say yes. You're made in the image of God who is exactly right there in those moments. And so let's pray for that right now. That God gets us there. The person who's going to pray is Alex. Oh, this is awesome. Alex Lawrence. Alex, just, there's just... Man, some people just come in and make such a difference so quickly. And Alex and Chelsea have come in and just, they're just spectacular human beings. And they just do so many things. And he's on council now already. And, and, and he's, I just love these guys. But, you know, this is the perfect person to pray for this. Alex, pray that every person in this church get a hold of what God's trying to get us into at this point in time. Okay? It's not even, I don't even care about the sermon so much. 
I just care that God make us into what he wants us to be. And do pray for another church and that other believers would get there too. Thank you. God, as we come before you this morning, we, we thank you for the trials that forge us into what you want us to be. God, I, I ask that you, you stand with us in those moments, that you make your presence known, God, and that we, we take the courage from you to, to do what you want, to Amen. be what you want. Amen. And Father, I pray for the folks over at Mill Creek Foursquare. I pray that they... Amen. They get to see these lessons of trust too. God, Amen. would you have your hand on Chris as he speaks over there? And Amen. Father, as we all grow in you, I pray that you bless us and guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. That's a great prayer. I love Chris. That is a great man. Okay. If I were to ask you, what's the most popular parable that Jesus ever spoke? And if I were to just refine it just a little bit and say, not just the most popular, but also the most beloved, what would you say? Just think about it for a second. What would you say? What parable st just kind of jumps out at you as being the most popular, the most beloved parable he ever spoke? It's Good Samaritan. I heard several other things too, but Good Samaritan. That's the one where we're going today. And I think that the Good Samaritan, well, you're going to see there's so many reasons why this is a parable. And I, I think the thing is, is that it speaks to us so deeply, this is a parable about which have been written books that you can't even carry. They're so thick. That's not true, of course, but you understand. <laughs> this little parable that's a few verses long has had encyclopedic writing about all the principles and all the details, all the stuff that's going on in this little parable. This parable, this parable teaches us how to act almost more than any other single parable ever written. How to be, right? Here's the thing I want us to see. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus graduating us from that college level to that master's level and sending us out to learn. And, and as he's doing that, you remember he sent the 12 out, but then he sent the 72 out. This is the one we look at that. And he says, look, it's going to be, you're going to be lambs amongst wolves, but don't take anything. Trust me. Trust me and let me do things through you. And sure enough, God did things through them, and they come back, and they rejoice about all the things that God is doing through them, and they're marveling, and Jesus says, yeah, I know, isn't it incredible? And as you did this, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. And then he says this incredible thing. He says, you have to understand, there's people that have been waiting millennia, I'm paraphrasing, but millennia, to see what you guys are now doing. See it? So this is an incredible moment. Now that's the passage we're in. And the point that I want you to see is we're just about to go to Good Samaritan. And I never knew it before until I studied it here. But these, the Good Samaritan story is completely connected to this whole thing of having him having sent people out. It's completely connected. In fact, the NLT, which I'm going to use, because I like the way it phrases most of it, this is the one place, every once in a while I tell you NLT, you've got to be a little careful about this is the one place where NLT really, I think, misses the words. I've gone back and looked at it. I, I don't understand why they do Every other translation has it. If you have an ESV or a Holman or a New King James or a King James or whatever, an ESP, all of them are going to say something like immediately, right then, just then, something like that. Okay? So uh, just then, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus 
by asking him this question. Now, you see the just then? You see the connection? He's just said, you guys are going out and ministering and doing things which people have been trying to look into and see. And you're now moving in the fulfillment of all of these promises. And then, here comes the thorn in the side from Satan. Now, I really do mean that. In order for us to understand this parable, we have to understand what's happening here. So let me take a minute to help us to understand what an expert in the religious law is and why he would be testing Jesus. To be in the religious order, you have to be of a certain family, family line. If you are in that family line, you know how we go to grammar school and then grade school and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, junior high, high school, so on. This is not what people in this, in this line do. They go to religious school, and it's not school where they're learning about other things. Here's what they do in the morning. They read the word, memorize the section for the day, memorize it, copy it. They spend the entire time, not in commentaries, not in all that kind of stuff, they spend the entire time just memorizing this passage during the day. And then they have dinner with the rabbis and the rabbis start peppering with questions about the passage. Does it mean this? Does it mean that? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? What does it mean? What is, what is this? What is that? What is this? What is that? And what they're doing is they're doing that normal thing that people do when they are giving that much time to it. Now this is a good thing that they're giving a lot of time to it, right? But I need you to understand what happened with these particular people. They became so picky-yoon. You know the word? Picky. Right? It's, all, it's sort of onomatopoeic. It explains itself. Okay? It, they become so picky-yoon about the details of it that they start understanding in enormous depth, subtlety, and nuance the letter of the words. But they end up losing the spirit of them. They're the kind of people that develop thousands and thousands of laws upon laws upon laws upon laws about how to actually fulfill these words so that you never get it wrong and in so doing they end up getting it completely wrong. This is who a religious expert is. Okay? And this is why he said this way. Now, here's the reason why they're testing him. Because Jesus is doing something that is infuriating them. Understand, these people have enormous power in a theocracy. This is, Israel is not a democracy. It's not even a dictatorship. Israel is a theocracy. That means it, God is the center of their life. And so the point is, the people of this priestly order are the ones that are held in the highest esteem. They're the ones that have the most authority. They're the ones that people are supposed to look up to. Right? But the problem is, is that the people have a love-hate relationship with them. On the one hand, you spent so many years studying about this. Who am I to question you? But on the other hand, man, you are a pain in the butt. <laughs> let, me, let me say it more like Jesus said it. Man, you're a pain in the butt. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. They never help them to understand how to actually fulfill it. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. You see what that means? What they're doing is, is they're taking herbs and instead of monetizing it, turning it into a penny, and then tithing a penny, 
They're tithing literally 10% of that little herb. See what I mean? He's saying you do that stuff, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. I would add God. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. The bigger things. And here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming along, and he is showing people what hypocrites these people are. You've got it so figured out that it doesn't have anything to do with what it means anymore. And he comes along, and in these simple little ways, that common people, people who are too unsophisticated and unlearned to know the depths, Jesus comes along and does the simplest little things that make people understand it in ten times more depths than anybody ever did, including the Picayunes. You see it? He does these things that are showing them up, and it's infuriating them to the point, you understand, this conflict is why they will turn him over to the Romans to be killed. You understand that this was not just a small thing. They hated him. They hated him for what he was doing. And here's what they're thinking. See, this is kind of a little bit early in the process. What they're thinking is, is I know so much about the law. There is no chance that if we ask this simpleton little fisherman or carpenter from Galilee, you know, they're unsophisticated to begin with. They're southerners, you know? <laughs> Nothing wrong with people from the south. I'm just being racist, okay? <laughs> It'll come back, okay? But you get the point. And the point is, is what they're saying is, is I can trap him in his words. All I got him to do, all I got him to do is, I need to stun him and start saying things. Because what? If Jesus, if, 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 if we get to this place about neighbor and so on, and if Jesus says this, if Jesus says, well, your neighbor is a Gentile pig, everybody's going to know that's not true because we Jews are racist. And let's be clear about this. And I'll show you in a little bit more how much this is true. But the Jewish people are racist because Gentiles are pigs. And even worse is somebody else that we're going to get to in a moment. You understand this, right? We're the purebloods. We're the ones that God has chosen. Now, he chose them not because they were better than anybody else. He chose them precisely because they were everyone else. But they made it out to be that we're better and more special. And so they feel themselves more special, more chosen, more anointed, better human beings than these other people. You see this? And so this is how, if Jesus comes and says, well, you got to be nice to Gentile pigs, he clearly cannot be from God. Because that strikes at our whole national identity as Jewish people. The common people won't go for that. But, on the other hand, if he doesn't include the Gentiles in there, the people thinking him to be a man of the people are going to realize that he's just as picayune as we are. See what I mean? He's starting to make distinctions, too. Do you get the test here? Do you get what's happening? Right? Okay, so let's follow it through now. Okay? He asked him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus replied, as he does, whenever they're testing him, almost every single time, what's the next thing he does? He questions them. <laughs> Which is awesome. Because <laughs> the question he gives starts to dive right into what the problem is of what they're saying. So it answers their question and starts to show up the problem. So, teacher, what, and Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is called the great commandment. And we who are Christians and have come into a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, 
and the personhoods of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we talk about love, it is not an abstract thing, is it? We have learned what it means to love, and so it's a concrete thing. But in a culture that doesn't actually have relationship with God and has become about rules and regs, what is love? What does it mean? It's way too mushy of an answer. I need to get him down into the details because, see, our rabbis would question us about who's our neighbor. So I got all of these little traps picked for him no matter what he says about who a neighbor is. See this? Now Jesus, in an important moment for us who need to become doers, not just hearers, Jesus tells him, do this and you will live. But understand, when he thinks about doing it, he's thinking about how to live according to the law, how to live up to the principles. So now the trap has been laid. Jesus has moved his chess piece. And now here comes the king, the, you know, or the checkmate. Here comes the checkmate moment where the guy says, yeah, wanting to justify his own actions. See, he wanted to justify the way he felt about it, wanting to, wanting to explain how he does it and what this is. And it, you understand, what he's, it's, it's a very, if you look at different translations, you'll see it's very difficult to translate it. Basically what he's saying is he wanted to demonstrate something. He wanted to show how what he was saying was righter than what Jesus was saying. See? And who Jesus was. How he was the educated guy. He's the guy that understands this. So in other words, trying to do his agenda, he asked Jesus, so who's my neighbor? Trap has been laid. Now you've got to answer. And so Jesus answers. And we're going to read this whole thing straight through because I just want you to see it once and just live in it for a moment in the beautiful place that it really is meant to be because in two seconds we're going to destroy all of this. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. Who was it? A Jewish man. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by, but he also passed by on the other side. A priest and a Levite, okay? NLT is translating Levite that way. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Compassion, splanknisomai. This word that Jesus had whenever he would minister. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man and if the bill runs higher than the money I've given you, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And Jesus, Jesus asked. And the man replied the only way he could reply. See, there is no other answer the man can give. Well, the priest was the neighbor. Well, the Levite was the neighbor. There's no other answer. Checkmate by Jesus. It's the one who showed mercy. So Jesus says, so go and do that instead of the stuff that you're doing. Go do that. Go start having mercy. See it? Do we get it? That's beautiful, isn't it? But like I say, we need to make this real. Okay? So I need three people. Will Lees, you got to come up. I, I meant to call, get you guys earlier. I'm sorry about that. Okay? Uh, actually, why don't all three of you come? Could, you, could I get all three of you? Go ahead, you guys. You guys are sitting together. You get to be in pain together. Okay? Philip, you're up here too. Okay? Come on up. Okay? Now, 
Okay, we're going with, this is priest, okay? Philip, go right there, okay? This is priest, this is Levite, you can tell by the hairstyle, okay? And this is, this is Samaritan, okay, got it? Got it, okay? And this is the man that we now have to beat up in order to really make this story real, so, okay. All right, now, okay, okay. So you gotta go to the ground, okay? Sorry you got nice pants on, all right, all right. So, so here's... Here's our, here's our Jewish man on the ground, okay? Now, now let's understand what a priest really is in this story. Let's understand what they heard when they heard priest. This is a theocracy, remember. When they hear a priest, they don't hear what we hear, which is some guy who runs a little Catholic church or something like that, you know, Episcopalian or whatever, right? What they hear is the most important person in the culture, the priest is, there's, there's, the, the politicians are scum. I guess things haven't changed, no. <laughs> that was a joke. If you feel like you've been led into politics, I hope you go into it because we need help, okay? But the bottom line is, is that when you think about the, the big, most important, most powerful people in the culture, priest is it, okay? This is like, to make you understand it to the degree that the people would have heard it in that day, when Jesus starts with the priest, and we think, oh, it's so bad that the priest went around the guy that was hurt. Actually, here's what those people heard. Pope. And the Pope is way too busy. It's not saying that you can't have a heart for the guy, but the Pope is headed to the temple, headed to do this big work, and he's got way bigger responsibilities than this. You understand? And it's almost like it's almost okay. You see what I'm saying? It's not okay, is it? I mean, the cool thing about Francis, you know, Benedict would have walked around the guy, Francis would have ministered to the guy. That's kind of how we feel about the popes, if you know your popes, right? But the bottom line is, is that's how we feel about them. And so the point is, is that when people hear that the pope went around this guy, saw him and went, I can't touch him because if I touch him, I'll be defiled, and I won't be able to take care of the duties that I had in the temple. So he crosses the other side of the street, and he goes by, and the people kind of go, yeah, nicely done. The people kind of go, okay, I got it, right? And now here comes the Levite. Now the Levite, this is more that whole order of people that take care of people. They do do the temple stuff, but they all, they're also sort of the connection to the community in a way. And so the Levite, this is the one where it starts to come home to people. People would expect the Levite to go, but this guy sees it again, and he's going to the temple. He's got some duties to do. He's got something to do. He's got an agenda. So he, too, goes to the other side of the street and passes by. Okay. Now, I'm going to change the story for a second here in order for you to really understand the import of this moment. Here's the way I think a lot of us would have told the story if we were making it up. We're going to make this guy the Samaritan. Why? Well, because think about how Jews think about Samaritans. Remember how I told you that they were racist about Gentile pigs? If they were racist about Gentile pigs, Samaritans, what's racist squared? What's racist on steroids? Ignorance. <laughs> Ignorance. That's great, Mark. That guy's name is Mark Anderson, and Mark Anderson sent me the most precious email, and I'm sorry, Mark, but uh, you, I'm okay with this, right? Can I say this? He sent me the most, uh, made me cry email this week about um, 
having lost his wife a few years back and the pain of that and hoping that a word of solace might have come at a certain time with, with Herb and so on and everything else. And he also mentioned something. This body is so beautiful about helping people, but he said, he said, a lot of people have come up to me and once they get to know me and then I've got a few problems and so on, they don't ever come back up to me again. I just started crying. I do it. <laughs> you know? God teaches us how to be good Samaritans. Okay? Mark, I love you. Thank you. We would say that this is the Samaritan. And here's what a Samaritan is to a Jewish person. When there was King David who made the whole nation... 400 years they've been in land. He was the second king. He made the whole nation, all 12 tribes, a kingdom. There was, first there was uh, Samuel, and then there was uh, David, and now there is, or Saul, excuse me, and then there was David, and then there's Solomon. So there's only three kings where all 12 tribes are together. And then what happens is Solomon had, as the people in the north said, laid a pretty heavy burden on us, all those things he built, and all those things he did that make him so famous. Well, it was on our backs. And so what they say is, if you just lighten up, we'll stay with you. The son gets bad advice and says, my little finger's heavier than my dad ever was. And so they say, well, fine with you, and they split. Now, in the whole history of the nation of Israel, they never have one good king. They all go after other gods. In this southern nation, they only have three or four good kings. They go after God. All the rest of them go after other gods. So they're pretty bad too. But God keeps telling the northern kingdom, telling them over and over and over, if you don't quit going after other kings, I'm going to wipe you out. If you don't quit going after other things, I'm going to wipe you out. If you don't get this together, I'm going to wipe you out. And finally, one day he does it. And he brings down, you see up here where it says at the very top right, Assyrian Empire? That's all of this mass that's up here. And they're the big daddies of the day. They're the big man on campus. They are the empire. And they come down and they wipe out that nation of Israel. But here's the deal. If you're, in, if you're in the business of wiping out other people groups, one of the problems you have is, is that you, want to, you don't want to kill them, you want to make them slaves so that they create economic wealth for you. And if you don't do something, then what they're going to do is eventually they're going to get their national, national pride back and they're going to come after you. So what the Assyrians do in order to stop that from ever happening is, as soon as they take over a land, they force the people to intermarry with other people from other nations so that pretty soon their kids are not the chosen people, the pure bloodline, the anything. They're a mix of all kinds of different races and religions and cultures and everything else. You see it? They try and destroy their national identity so that they'll just be subservient and they'll never rise up as a group to overcome the big guy. Do you see it? Now, if you're a Jewish person... And you're looking at this hundreds of years later. Here's how you think about a Samaritan. I'm using these words advisedly. I need to in order for us to get it. A Samaritan is a half-breed and a mongrel. Those are hurtful words. Those are bad words. But the point is, is that this is how the Jewish people think about these people. They don't think of them as a full person. There was a time in our country where we had African-Americans who were two-thirds of a person legally. Do you see it? So it, apparently it isn't so far away. But the point is, is even, even as much as we had that ethnic divide in this country, 
I want to tell you that this one was much worse because the way that the people, I guess there were some white Christians that felt this way too. But the point is, is what they felt like was is that it was their fault. God had judged them. Forgetting about the fact that God took them to Babylon and just by his mercy rescued them from there. They would have disappeared too. They did the same thing. Do you see it? But the point is, is that they're thinking we're the ones who are chosen, we're the ones who are kept, you are the ones who are despicable, and so we're right to treat you as less than human. Because God does. You understand it? Racism is never so powerful as when it has God behind it in a person's mind. The problem being, of course, is that God is anything but racist, because from the very beginning he said he was going to everybody. Right? Couldn't have made it more clear. In the line of Jesus, put several people who were not Jewish. <laughs> right? Could not have made it more clear. But nonetheless, this is how the Jewish people have gotten, because we do tend to do those kinds of things. Right? And so they got to a place of pride. They got to a place of judgment. They got to a place where that's who this person was. Now, if I were telling the story, I would say, this is a Samaritan He's hated. This is the Jewish guy, and I want to show you a good Jewish person because this is the Jewish person who overcomes his hate in order to deign to help the person in need, even though he's a Samaritan. Now, that's a pretty powerful lesson right there, isn't it? That would be, a, that would be enough of a parable right there, right? All by itself, right? Except that there's a superiority in it still, isn't there? The Jewish person who deigned to help the lesser. So here's what Jesus does, because Jesus is so cool. What Jesus is, is he said, that's a Jewish person, and this is the hated Samaritan. And he's the guy that does God's heart. You see it? Go ahead and minister to him. <laughs> he not only, now watch this. Yes, thank you. <laughs> he not only ministers to him on the spot, but he goes and takes money, pays to put the guy up, leaves money on account, and goes into surety for him, not knowing how much it's actually going to cost him. Now, who's the friend? It's the Samaritan. And for the Jewish people that were listening to that story, their minds just went, <laughs> because this doesn't make any sense. We knew, that this Jew, we knew that this Jesus guy was doing things differently, but he has, just, he has just blown apart everything. The depths of this story to the Jewish mind, well, the depths of this story to the Jewish mind still can't be understood by the modern mind unless we redo the story one more time. Come back over, guys. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Twice in one day. Who knew? I'm not going to go to church there anymore. <laughs> That's it. I'm out of here. <laughs> Who is this person in modern day in America? I don't know. But we got we to do a combination of things because we can't find the right person unless we make a combo deal out of it. And so the combo deal is it's got to be a pastor of a mega church, a mega, 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 mega church, a Bill Heibel, a Rick Warren, a really good person, right, that people do like and so on. It's got to be a pastor, somebody that people like of a mega, mega, mega church. But even then it's not important enough because people in the world don't know about these religious people. They don't even know who Rick Warren is. 
right? And so we got to go a little bit further. We got to make him the pastor of a mega, mega church, and we also have to make him the governor of the state, okay? So now you get somehow the feeling of the story that Jesus is telling us. This is a man who got voted into office by people that didn't know the Lord and people who did and so on. This is a beloved man and all this kind of stuff. And we all understand that this is a good person. But the bottom line is, is he has too many responsibilities to stop and help this guy, doesn't he? He still does, doesn't he? So, okay, he gets to go across the street and walk right on by. Okay? Now, who's this person in contemporary society? This is me. The pastor of a church this size or a little bigger, a little smaller, whatever, but the pastor of a normal-sized church. Average church in America is 100 people, 89 people, actually, okay? But the point is, the pastor of a church who we expect, if somebody's hurt, we expect them to help them, don't we? Now, can I say something? Can we just put a sidebar on this real quick? Okay, right, 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 right? You with me? Okay, I'm going back to the story in a second. Can I just say something? Do you remember before you beat me about this that I'm supposed to help everybody do remember that the disciples even said, we have to be, it's not right for us to be caught up in everything. We have to be studying the word and finding God. And so can we please put some deacons in charge of taking care of the widows? So, okay. So the issue is the church has to do a good job of caring for its people. Now that I'm willing to go with. If you want me to be that person, I love you and I'll try. But I'm going to fill. Can we please make that clear, okay? I'm just trying not to die. Okay. <laughs> All right, so now we're back to our story, okay? So I'm the, I'm the pastor, okay? This is the pastor. And we expect the pastor to go and meet, and I would. If I saw somebody like that, I would do that. I hope, God, if I didn't, then, you know, get rid of me, okay? But I, you know, this is somebody in need. And when I do this, when I go across the street and walk right on by him, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, that's bad, Right? This, is, this ain't cool now. That's what you're saying. If you're hearing this, if Jesus is right here right now telling you this parable, which he is, when I tell you that part of it, you say, this, something about this has gone wrong. Now, let me switch it again so that we start off first with this being who? Samaritan doesn't mean anything to me. So let's find the contemporary analogy of what does. This is an ISIS soldier. You're telling me that I have to go and help him? Don't help him. You don't want to. <laughs> You're telling me that not only do I have to help him, but I have to pay a bunch of money. You're telling me that I not only have to pay a bunch of money, but I'm due, I'm good for standing behind the debt that he incurs in order to get healthy? I don't want to see him healthy. I want to see him dead. See what's happening here all of a sudden? But do understand something. If Jesus was telling us his parable right now, that's not the ISIS soldier. This is. And Jesus is telling you, who's the neighbor? Go ahead, ISIS soldier. <laughs> because of ISIS. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to make light of ISIS because what they're doing is horrible and grotesque in ways that I hope everybody knows. You know, I mean, we've had Cannon White. I still keep 
you know, we're still very much involved in this in every single way that we can. The tragedy that's going on all over there. Tragedy is not the right word. The horror, the horror of what's going on is, is unbelievable. And people are crying about religious monuments being taken down right now. And where was that cry when so many people were dying? Because they're still dying right now. Now, I want to thank you guys. Okay, thank you. So, okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. But can I say something now? I started off by saying that the Good Samaritan was the most popular and the most beloved parable. But now I just made it modern. And Jesus has just told you that the person that manifested the neighbor was the ISIS soldier. And I want to say, I don't think that I like this parable as much as I did before when it was people that I didn't really understand what was going on in the parable. Do you see it? I don't even know if I want this. He's asking something of me which goes to a depth, which goes to a place. It's not about my friends and my neighbors. It's not about just people that I love. He's asking me to go someplace that's unbelievably difficult and I I want to say that there would be, perhaps, I hope not in this congregation, but there might even be somebody who's saying, Kurt, you know, you made that story and we get it, and we get the thing you're saying, but Jesus would never say that about an ISIS soldier. Because after all, God chose his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us to him. Enemies. If we're going to be like Christ, we're going to have to find another gear. It isn't just about our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family. Can I say, thank God that so much of it is? Really, right? I mean, so much of the ministry that you're going to do is going to be in your sphere of influence, which is going to be your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. That's going to be your sphere of influence. And it's awesome that you get to do that amongst people that you at least like. Maybe not all of them. I mean, coworkers, right? You know, even family members sometimes, right? But you get the drift. You're amongst people that you're that you know and that you're comfortable with, and and all this kind of stuff. And he's not just talking about people outside that circle. He's talking about people that are opposed to you. Now we all know this in our gut, don't we? But can I say something? Here's what we do. When I sent us out last week, we all had this thought that we all understood that it might lead to, as several testimonies said, somebody that's destitute on the road that you wouldn't normally look at or talk to, right? We all know that that meant be open to that too. I don't think anybody walked out of here thinking that what God would be talking about was is somebody who was your enemy. I mean, not in a real enemy sense. I mean, if they're just like a coworker that you're in a fight with, okay. But you see what I'm saying? Here's what I'm trying to say. We live in a bubble, and it's, it's natural. Understand this. You can't really escape it. We live in a bubble, and here's why. You can't possibly pay attention to every single person that you meet or go past in a day. In New York City, what does everybody always say when they're walking down the streets? Particularly somebody from the Midwest or something. Nobody ever looks at you. You know why they don't look at you in New York? Because there's 7 million of them right there in that tiny little island. You just can't look at people in the eye. You don't know what's going to happen. Eventually, you do have to get to the other end of the block. And our minds have been specifically designed to be able to pay attention to what we want to pay attention to and ignore what we don't. 
And so we do this. And I want to say that if we properly understand the Good Samaritan story, if we let it sink into us the way that Jesus wanted it to sink into the disciples of his day, and the way that I think he hopefully just tried to sink it into you right now, the first thing that happens is, is that we come to understand something, which is, I have a bubble, and I need to be conscious of the fact that I have a bubble. And I need to work at getting outside that bubble. I need to work at understanding that God might move me into an area that isn't friends, families, coworkers, and neighbors. You see it? God is trying to say, I want you to stop looking at some people as if they weren't actually people. Because you can write them off. And I don't mean for racist reasons. I just mean for practical reasons. I want you to start looking at everybody the way I see them. Do you see that? Now all of a sudden, something else is happening. Here's a quick little story. My wife was once filling up at a gas station when this isn't from this church. A man approached and started cleaning the windshield of our car. At first, my wife was alarmed by this uninvited action. Our children, who were small at the time, were in the back seat of the car. We were a little worried. Just as she opened her mouth to tell him she did not want him to wash the car's windows, she felt the familiar voice of the Holy Spirit rise up inside of her. The next moment, I love the way he puts this, she heard herself saying, not she intended to say, but she heard herself saying, the Lord says you've just gotten out of prison, but God has called you to be Joseph, and you have a call of God to preach his word. So the Lord says, go home and preach. The man froze, staring at her for a moment. Then he dropped his water bucket, turned around, and began walking quickly away. Fearing that she might have offended or frightened him, my wife chased after him and said, Sir, where are you going? Listen to this. His reply, Lady, I did just get out of prison, and as a little boy, I dedicated my life to preach, but I ran away from God. So I'm going back to my grandfather's church, and I'm going to preach the gospel. When we start seeing people the way God sees people, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to see them differently than you do. Because for reasons of efficiency and for reasons of bias and for reasons even of prejudice, we don't tend to see people. So watch. Here's what I'm saying. All of a sudden you're going, well, how can I do that, Kurt? It's like meat so am I. Remember? That, that little thing, okay? That thing that Jesus did. It's not every single, it's, take the moment to look at every person. Take the moment and understand, it's not every single person. I can tell you right now, there'll be five needs that you will walk by until God quickens you to the one that he wants you to do. And then we actually have to trust that God's like okay with time management. That God's okay and he knows our agenda. We have to trust that he understands that there's an important business meeting coming up and that he'll give us the grace for that too. He's not a God of disorder. He's not a God of chaos. He's a gentleman. But he is asking for something from us, isn't he? He is asking for something from us, isn't he? And I'm telling you, he's asking this congregation something. He's asking something from us. 
And he's saying, I want you to start seeing people the way I see people. Now, and let me give you a really great reason why you should do that. Adam, come on up here. I want to do this with you, okay? Adam is somebody that I have come to love. I mean love. If I found out that Adam got cancer tomorrow, I would be dying inside. And I would come to him and I would want to pray for him and I would be crying and I would be weeping and I would be, I would splunk need some eye. I would be feeling what he's feeling. I'd be having these things happening inside and I'd be praying for him to be healed. But now watch this. There'd be a little thing that everybody who's ever done this before knows because whenever you're praying for somebody that you really love, you know that you're, that you're biased on what should happen. You know that it's not God's agenda only at play anymore, is it? Because your love is telling him what to do. <laughs> and you, so it gives us this excuse in our mind and faith, which is bad, but it also is a reality, right, of what my love is hindering my ability to know what God wants to do. Because I just don't want him to die. And Jesus says to Peter, who just said to him, No, Lord, don't die. You can't do that. Jesus says, not you, okay. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not after what God wants. So when we're only ministering to people that we love, can I tell you something? We always have a problem, don't we? Now, it's a good problem in a sense because, boy, if you're supposed to have your gut turning and empathize and be connected, if it's somebody that you love, you're connected, right? If you hear about somebody getting cancer that you don't know, it just doesn't do the same thing in you, does it? It just doesn't. Jeff, come up here. But let's just say, let's just say that there's somebody that you hear got cancer and you don't know them, you don't love them, you don't have that part in play. I do love you, but. <laughs> but you don't have that part in play, and so what happens? If God moves you, if your gut turns over when you hear this, if you have this empathy for them, and you're being drawn to them, when you're going to them, look at what's going on right now. You don't, ha you don't have that love muddying the waters. You already know that God wants to do something. And you're just asking him what he wants to do. Last week, what I told everybody was, don't, when you go to somebody, when God starts to quicken you and you start to move towards somebody, don't start thinking, what can I do? That's the wrong thought. Start thinking, what can God do? What does God want to do? What does he want to do through me? See, what can God do here? And what does he want to do? So that you get what he wants to do and then you minister what he wants, not what you want. So if we start understanding the Good Samaritan story properly, we all of a sudden understand that God is starting to do something that is making us, as he draws us to people that we don't know, that aren't close to us, that aren't friends, neighbors, coworkers, that's that smaller sphere, we already start to see him starting to quicken in you how to move to meet this guy. And now what happens? After two or three of these experiences, you start knowing what God sounds like better in this moment, don't you? And now when it's somebody that you love that gets it, you're able to discern between soul and spirit what you want and what he wants. Do you see it? 
If we will own the Good Samaritan story for the richness that it really is and not for the pablum makes us feel good story that we all think of it as. If we start owning the challenge of the Good Samaritan story, what will happen is, is that he will refine us. He will sharpen us. He will make us better at it. And we'll not only be moving and meeting here, but we'll be moving and meeting here. Do you see it? Thank you, guys. This is a missionary. I can't use his name. Some of you know him, but I can't use his name. He's in a dangerous country. He's in a country, Turkey, where a friend of mine went, and he ministers to pastors, and it is a nation that was the very heart of Christianity. This is where it started. All those missionary journeys, right there, right on that map, right there. That's the heart of Christianity, the birthplace of Christianity. It's now mostly Muslim, the Turkey part. And it's so badly Muslim that when my friend went there a few years ago, they poisoned him in a way that they intended to kill him, and he still to this day has health effects from it because he was training up other pastors. But there's a missionary, like I say, some of you know, and, and I wish I could share his name because I wanted to hope, raise some support, but I was warned today that I can't do that, just like we can't talk about some of our other missionaries. This church likes to take on missionaries in places that are difficult. Okay? And here's a letter that this missionary wrote on 11-25-14. This is November, late November, almost December of last year. I know that we're to pray for the sick in conjunction with preaching the gospel of the poor. I'm in the midst of a quest to study the scripture and learn about, scriptures and learn about healing. See, what he's saying is, is, I'm witnessing to these people and it's not having much effect. And I understand that God wants me to not just be an eloquent words of man's wisdom guy. He wants me to be a demonstration and power guy. He wants me to bring the real Christ because they're worshiping a non-real God. Do you see it? And so he's saying there needs to be an evidence of the reality of Christ in the situation. So I'm in the midst of a quest to study the scriptures. I want to say right there, that's what you should all be doing. That's what we should all be doing. We should not only be going out and doing, we should be studying our scriptures and finding out how God wants to do this so that we get better at doing this. And then we should be sending in emails and giving testimonies in this church about what God did and how he did it so that other people can learn from what you're learning. You see it? That's who we need to be. And so this is who he is. Please pray for this time of study, the opportunities to teach and equip, and the opportunities to heal the sick and preach the gospel to the church. Now, that was in November of last year. It's only two and a half months later, the beginning of February. Two and a half months later. Thank you for praying. Two and a half months later. This isn't a long time. We've been given the opportunities to heal sick Turkish Muslims, preach the gospel, and teach about healing. Last Sunday, our Turkish Cypriot neighbors were healed of rib and ankle pain. Their wife fell into a water storage tank, cracked a rib. The husband had broken his ankle a month ago. We went to their house. I told the wife I could pray for her in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the pain would go away. When, anybody ever cracked a rib in here before? Okay, would you like to get rid of the pain? Would you, you know, a normal bone, they set it. But you can't set a rib, because you, you have to breathe. <laughs> the ribs turn out and they're pretty important. You know, they, they, go, they get big and that's what draws air in. So you've got to have your ribs being able to move and they're broken, so that hurts every time you breathe. And the people that have had it happen go, yes, it does. He prayed for her. She agreed to let us pray for her. So I told the pain to go away in the name of Jesus and it did. 
I then told the husband I could pray in the name of Jesus and the pain would leave his ankle. He was surprised. I had to repeat myself. He said, okay, to my request. I laid my hand on his ankle and told the pain to leave in Jesus' name, and it did. He was nearly shocked that the pain and swelling had left. I saw him yesterday. He was walking down the street, told me there was no pain in his ankle. Being emboldened, he starts, he starts going Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, right? Last Monday, I'm running some errands. I stopped by a garden center. I'm acquainted with one of the Turkish Cypriot sales clerks. I asked her what she was doing. She told me she was experiencing heart palpitations and could not sleep at night. I told her I could pray for her in the name of, just help me on this, Isa Masai, Masai? I don't know, Isa Masai, I think. Lord Jesus, and that the heart palpitations would stop. She agreed. So I told the heart palpitations to stop in the name of Jesus. She told me she did not have them anymore. On Wednesday, I stopped by to see her. I asked her if they were still gone. She said yes. I love this guy because you see how he's following up. Not just, not just you know, pray and then hope and walk away. You know the most important thing you can do when you pray for somebody for anything? Did that happen? Why? Because it teaches you. <laughs> right? If it didn't happen, figure out what to do next. Don't just go, oh my God, now I'm really freaked out. I don't know what I'm going to do. See? On Friday, we have friends who live in a Turkish village that ask us to pray for a Turkish friend. See? Samaria now. Going out. To pray for a Turkish friend who they ministered to for a year. We prayed for peace and healing of his lung. We told him the gospel message again. He then took his first step to receiving Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I'm a missionary here. People that really love the Seahawks know that. Because <laughs> you can't leave your childhood home. Seattle is not home to me. Seattle is incredibly pleasant. He has planted me in pleasant places. I am happy that I live here. I am thankful that I've gotten to know you. I am thankful for the beautiful place he sent me, particularly compared to some of the other places he could have chosen. But do understand something. This is not home for me. And it never will be. I've lived here 18 years. I've lived here longer than any other place I've ever lived in my life. 18 years. So some of you are going, God, you are a lightweight. You're like a newcomer here. You know, I go back four generations to Seattle. But can I tell you what's cool about knowing that you're a missionary? You're always on mission. You're always looking for what the Lord wants to do. It doesn't mean you don't love. It doesn't mean you don't embrace. It doesn't mean you don't become friends. And it doesn't mean you don't make home. What it does mean is that you always, when you remember that you're not in your home, you remember why you're here. And I get to be reminded all the time about why I'm here. And I'm here for you. But I'm not just here for you. I'm here for every single person that lives in this community. I'm not just here for that. I'm going to publicly repent of what I did yesterday. Kimberly, I called Kimberly up, and we were on a, a credit card call, and this guy was really being a jerk. I mean, he took, us, he took 15 minutes to do something that seriously should have taken 30 seconds. And I called him a bad name, and Kimberly was on the phone, and she just started laughing. I can't believe my pastor just said that to this guy. <laughs> and can I just tell you, not because Kimberly heard me. That just sucks. I hate that about myself. I hate that I can get angry and say things like that to another human being. I can tell you I would never do that to anybody to their face, and I say that 
with some memory of how it had happened in the past, but fortunately distant past, I think. I hope, I pray. But I can still do it on a technical support call. I can still lose it. And I just want to say, I think the people in India must hate Americans. I think they must have such a perverted sense of the entitlement, the privilege, the our stuff don't stink. And it's not because of everybody, because I'm sure every other person in here is so wonderful to them that they love Americans. But you know, it just takes one bad apple to spoil the bunch. But you see where I'm going here? God is, God is love. And I need to be love. I need to be love. At every moment, in every situation, no matter how trying it is. Because oddly enough, the most difficult moments are the ones where God can have the most victory. When it's my enemy. Not that that person was my enemy. But do you get the point? I was going to do a discussion right now, and I was going to get some testimonies from people, but can I say something? Would you store your testimonies? I just feel like there's a holy moment here, and I don't want to go past it. I don't want to slide into anything else. I just, okay, so next week we're going to do, thank you, we're going to do uh, testimonies, okay? So I need you to go out. I'm, I'm telling you right now, This is the testimony part that we were going to do, but we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In your tray is stop and go cards. If you didn't pick one up yesterday, last week, pick one up this week. This is mine by my door, and I move it around about every week because my brain doesn't see it after a while. So I move it to different places so it'll see it again. See that? Lord, who do you want me to reach out to as I go out? And then, this week too. Now, I promise you, please don't spam us because I'm going to send you for a couple of weeks here a few emails. Okay, please don't do that. I'm promising I won't continue to do this for the long haul. But for last week and this week, I'm going to send you two more emails. And I'm going to ask you again. And you only need to respond to one of them, okay? If you, nothing happened by the time you get the first one, let it be a reminder. But on the second one, Please reply, and let me know what didn't happen. Several of you sent back to me and said, nothing happened. Thank you for that. You know why I need to know that? Because I need to know what God's actually doing. If I only hear the one thing, I'm going to think he's doing this, and he's not, because nothing happened. So I really need, please, everybody to respond, and then next week, we're going to talk about this. There's another thing that we're going to do as the Lord has led, but we're going to have a nice, good testimony time of what the Lord is doing. And if you, if you haven't had anything happen, all the more reason to come because you're going to hear stories about what happened in people that did happen. See what I mean? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you, and in a holy moment, it's almost like take off our shoes and, and, and start embracing what it means to be a Christian, a Christian, a Christ follower, doing what Jesus did. Not meaning Not meaning not just in sort of being nice, but being proactive, going out, going to places in order to make a difference, in order to bring you. Blessed are the feet of those on the mountains who bring good news. 
And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, anoint us, send us, send us. Here are we, send us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this communion that's in front of us and communion is to become one with you. Calm with union one, with oneness. We are becoming one with you right now as we commit to doing something and that is to go, but God, here's what we want to say. We are busy and complicated and nuanced and forgetful and all kinds of things and we just don't actually end up doing what our hearts are telling us to do and God, we're asking you that it not be on us that we get out there and do it. We're asking you seriously that by your grace, your mercy, and your strong right arm that you would move us into situations like that first testimony we heard.